Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 261, recorded August 11th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 98. Security Now is brought to you by Ford and voice-activated sync, featuring hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. And by Astaro and the Astaro Security Gateway. For a demo unit in your business, call 877 the number 4 ASTARO or visit astaro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all of your security and privacy needs. Steve Gibson is the man about town, covering everything. Uh, having to do with security from GRC.com. It's the research. man about town. Man about security. <laughs> uh, you come up with something new each week. Like, oh. you're, you know, you're a very <laughs> dapper. Oh, secure bunker. You're a look. Yes, the man about him at Bunker, I should say. No, you're very dapper. You don't got the mustache. I could just see you with a monocle, a little top hat, a cane. Mm. Kind of look like Mr. Peanut, actually. No. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> no, you're very, you're very dapper. You have that I'm Ted Turner kind of dapper look. Stop encouraging you now. <laughs> Hi, Steve. How are you? Great, great to see you. Yeah, I've been be on vacation. Yeah, I've been uh, the, the last show I did was uh, I think was uh, this show or, or this week in Google, and then I took off for a, a trip back east with my daughter to bring her to college, and now uh, I just got back. You're my first show uh, back in. Fantastic. I love it that you leave immediately after recording one and then get back just before we need to record the next one. I couldn't miss this. Now in our, still in our fifth year. <laughs> Struggling out of our fifth year. <laughs> but, but this might be the last episode in our fifth year. A Q&A episode. Am I right, sir? The consensus is that this is the last episode of year five. So it's really great yeah. because this show of all shows attracts the, you know, the engineering mind, the, the serious geek. And of course, we always have this, you know, does it, did you start counting with zero kind of an issue and, and all oh, of that stuff. And I mean, we've got threads over in the news groups at GRC about, you know, wait a minute, the show numbering and what, which year, when the leap years factored in and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, goodness. So, yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have a Q&A, number 98. Um, and what would lots, that be in hex? No, no, lots, no, 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 no. <laughs> lots of news this week. Um uh, and uh, and eight neat questions and comments and thoughts from our listeners. So, uh, you know, another great podcast, I think. Let's kick of. it into gear. Uh, we'll start right away with uh, security updates, as we do every week. Well, Microsoft has broken another record. Oh, boy. An all-time record for the number of vulnerabilities patched at once. We are just past the second Tuesday of August. So, of course, we know that means Microsoft's release. Now, it would have been four, uh, would have been 15 sets of updates 
had they not pushed the emergency one out last week for the shell link vulnerability. And we've got some news about that, too. But so they only did that one in emergency mode, waiting till the second Tuesday of August to release 14 more sets of updates, uh, curing the most number of problems they've ever cured at once, which is th- at least 34 security holes, depending upon the way you count them. There were problems, multiple problems in Windows Secure Channel system, in the XML Core services, in their MPEG uh, Level 3, you know, MP3 codecs, uh, a full update round for IE that fixed a bunch of things. Their SMB service, which is the file sharing, file and printer sharing stuff. This old sign pack codec actually had some problems. Um, a problem with Office Word that could be exploited if you opened a maliciously crafted uh, RTF, a rich text format email message. They had problems in their .NET common language runtime, the CLR, and their Silverlight, which is you know sort of their their competitor to Adobe's Flash. Um, problems in the Windows kernel, kernel mode drivers, Movie Maker had a problem if you opened a malicious Movie Maker project file, and then of course Excel if you had a malicious Excel file. Even TCP/IP didn't get out from. Uh, not having something. There was a problem that allowed an attacker to get root privileges if it was able to log on to your system over TCP IP, a privilege escalation. And then something called tracing features for services. I don't even know what that is, but that had some problems. So pretty much everything. <laughs> you know, it, it gives lie to the idea that as time goes by, they might get, uh, you know, kind of have it locked down. I mean, we've talked about this often, and I mean, this is still the case. The problem is these systems are so complex, and they keep messing with it. You know, they 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 keep changing things and writing code. And do you think they're introduced? Has- so these are introducing bugs that they've introduced. Well, it's a, certainly a variety. Um, the, for example, the big one of last week, the the shell link exploit. We know that that probably <laughs> goes back to NT. Nothing new there. So that's there. been that's been there forever. Yeah. But certainly they are doing new things. And then there are there are problems. Well, I think we're going to be talking about it. Uh, there's an unpatched. Oh, that's in Adobe. There is. Oh yeah, there's a new zero day flaw Aye. in the Windows kernel Aye. that. That they introduced as a policy that I will, we'll talk about here toward the end of our of our news. So it's just it's you know it's a, a little bit of everything, unfortunately. Right, right. But you know, I'm, I mean, I'm glad they're fixing these things. I'm annoyed though that we know that, for example, XP Service Pack Two has all these problems, which they're no longer fixing. So right. you know, that's that's. But again, you you have to understand. I mean, I I understand that they can't can you know forever. Um, be responsible for their really old OSs and they want to move people forward. I'm probably going to experiment with Service Pack 3 again, although it bit me when I when I initially tried. The good news is I was able to just quickly remove it and everything was okay. But, you know, it's disconcerting, for example, for me to read that list of catastrophes and know that none of them are being fixed for me now, mm-hmm. although they're very likely still present. You know, I did my standard, oh, let's go see, you know, um, Microsoft update. And it said, oh, yeah, we got a couple things for Office. It's like, oh, okay. 
thanks a lot. You know, I mean, but <laughs> none of the, I didn't. I didn't get all the goodies. You left me I, behind. No. Yeah. So well, hey, I, I would never want to uh, in any way imply that because they're fixing them, there's something wrong. No, let's encourage everybody to to, to step forward when there's a problem and fix it. So that's good. And you're right. You can't expect somebody to support everything forever. I just feel like there's so many old versions of Windows on the net that it, I'm not saying support people who aren't going to upgrade, but I'm saying for the for the for the health of the net, you might want to. Well, and update. still in use, especially right. this jump from Service Pack Two, which was a big one. I mean, I could I could completely forgive them not going back beyond that. But Service Pack Two, as we remember, was the big, uh, if you pardon the phrase security update mm. uh for windows <laughs> that you know turned the fire on by default you know, i mean it was a it was a major change to xp um in fact that was where they disabled raw sockets because they realized that had been a mistake as i had been trying to explain to them since xp for, for since well before xp was first released and so many things got fixed in service pack 2 and as a, and because then service pack 3 has problems that many people have experienced many there's like a an install base of service pack 2 people who haven't moved yet to vista or right. windows 7 right. so I think that's if, if I have a problem with Service Pack Three, I'll probably just bite the bullet and go to Windows Seven. I have, sooner or later, I'm going to have to because I I can't stay back here. It's right. just not safe. And some would say, well, that's Microsoft's commercial interest in uh, in not updating it. But I I really think it's just also they feel like, well, we just can't keep putting money into this. Yeah, and it's got to be diff- it's got to be tough to do all the regression testing and make sure that they right. haven't broken other things. I mean, I, it's to frankly. You know, the pro side of this is it's amazing to me that this hasn't all just completely collapsed. This whole incredible infrastructure of crappy code <laughs> that it just hasn't collapsed under its own weight. It, just, it does feel like you're kind of, you know, oh. pasting over holes in the Titanic. You're like just it's, it's holding just, your breath quick. and pinching your nose. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's probably what they're thinking is, well, look, we rewrote everything. We got Windows 7. We got Windows Vista. Come on. Just, you know, guys, we've, we fixed it all. Come up here. Stop staying down there in the basement. But I just, look, Microsoft makes plenty of money. They can afford, oh, come on, what? They made what was it, eight or nine billion dollars in the last three months, take a hundred million of that, a small percentage of that, and fund upgrades for old versions of Windows. Not because, uh, you know, you're trying to support legacy users, but just because you're trying to protect the internet well, as a and whole. And that's really an interesting question, too, Leo. We What's happened is we've gone from the notion of, gee, I'd like to spend more money to get the newer version of Windows Somehow, without us sort of noticing when it happened, it became, oh, my God, I better right. spend more money or I'm going to be hacked. I'm going to be in trouble. So so now, I mean, here I'm under pressure to upgrade, although I'm completely happy with the OS right. that I purchased. But now I can't stay here because it's, no, it's going to be soon unsafe. Right. Well, you know, I, people call the radio show all the time saying I'm running Windows 95 on a 386. <laughs> and, of course, I would love to say, stop, go out, buy a new computer, come on, what are you, crazy? But you got to respect the fact that people don't have unlimited funds. Maybe, you know, this computer works fine, it works fine, it does what they want it to do. Who am I to say they should spend 500 bucks on a new computer if it works? Oh. 
And besides, nothing infects them anymore, Leo. Yeah. They, they, they've got different DNA. <laughs> Maybe they've bypassed. Same viruses can't infect them anymore. None of the stuff we're talking about affects you know, Windows 95. Actually, you're better off on Windows 95 than you are on Windows XP, probably. <laughs> All right. If it does what you want. Yeah. Well, and not to be forgotten, Adobe is, of course, in our weekly roundup of updates on both platforms. Flash Player has just had six critical memory corruption vulnerabilities fixed and I and it did update itself on various systems you know when I when I switch over to them it says oh we got a new version of flash player so everyone should make sure if they're worried that they're now at 10.1.82.76 that's the current release jumping up from 10.1.53.64 which had these six critical memory corruption vulnerabilities um, which are now patched in the latest. So Flash Player got fixed, and um, a unpatched new problem has been found in uh, PDF format uh, in both Adobe Reader and Acrobat, for which there is as yet no fix. Um, it's publicly known. Uh, haven't seen any proof of concept nor any exploit. But it turns out that there's a problem in the integer math um, uh, font parsing code for TrueType. There's an overflow error, which um, can be exploited to run arbitrary code. So I'm sure that Adobe is working on that. And and now, you know, this brings question to, like, what their update policy is going to be. Because they just did a Flash Player update on the second Tuesday because they're synchronizing with Microsoft. I assume now that they're in the, you know, remember that they were going to be doing only quarterly second Tuesday of the months. Then they said, okay, well, that, I mean, that, that, that didn't even last one quarter. <laughs> so now they're at monthly second Tuesday of the month to synchronize with Microsoft. So I presume that unless something really bad happens Within the next month, we'll be waiting a month for them to fix this problem, which has now been found. But hopefully, if if it becomes a real, you know, targeted exploit, they'll be able. I mean, they will agree to do an out of cycle update. So um, we'll kind of keep our eye on that and let our listeners know how that evolves. There's been um, much conversation about. This shell link vulnerability, which uh, is now really being exploited heavily in the wild, and the fact that it isn't, hasn't been patched for Service Pack 2, so just as we were talking about. And a bunch of different postings on the net have found ways around this. There were, the, the very first ones were distasteful sort of in i mean I, i've been checking them out because of course i'm affected by this as are i know many of our listeners because i've seen our mailbag um the most interesting one is a little troubling i don't i'm not going to recommend this and i don't have any experience with it yet because i just this morning as i was pulling things together for this podcast i ran across the most recent news on this issue of what can you do for Service Pack 2. Um, I did read, as I mentioned last week, a comment that um, people under Windows service agreements with Microsoft 
could get this patched for Service Pack 2. Now it turns out that if you look at the download, which is available from Microsoft's site for Service Pack 3, in the version tab, there's a, um, when, when you click, if you right click on the, the executable and look at its version information, it says in there that this is for Windows XP Service Pack 2 and Windows XP Service Pack 3. So it says it, that it runs on Service Pack 2. If you attempt to execute it, though, you get a little pop-up message box that says, this. oh, sorry, uh, your current Service Pack level is not supported. You need Windows Service Pack 3. Well, it turns out that there is a, red, a single registry value which can be changed from 200, which is to say it, it turns out this registry key specifies what service pack you have installed. You can change it from 200 to 300. That is to, 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 to fool the um, installer into thinking you have service pack 3 installed. If you then reboot your system after changing this key, then this patch installs. So that's been confirmed. But even better, it turns out that the Windows XP embedded version of the same fix will install without you having to play any games at all. And it too, in its version tab, says that it's compatible both with XP Service Pack 2 and Service Pack 3. Um, in order to take our listeners to that, um, the, the okay, first of all, you, you can, if you just Google XP space embedded space and then the knowledge base number, which is KB2286198, if so, if you Google XP space embedded space KB2286198, that the first link that comes up is Microsoft's page offering you the Windows XP embedded version of the shell link fix. And its version tab says it runs under Service Pack 2 and 3, and it does. And so I think that's the cleanest way of fixing this. And, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Microsoft knows all this. <laughs> if this is sort of their way right. of letting people who, you know, are stuck on Service Pack 2 for any of a myriad of reasons get themselves fixed. I also created a, a little short, a snip URL, snipurl.com slash link me. Will, it'll just redirect you. It's much easier to type in. snipurl.com slash link me, L-I-N-K-M-E. That just bounces you directly to the same Microsoft page. Um, you can download that directly from Microsoft, make no changes to anything. That one will install and fix the problem. And people who have done it have, have performed the tests of the vulnerability afterwards, and their system, their Service Pack 2 system, is then no longer vulnerable. So, I mean, I'm, this is, you know, not officially sanctioned, but I'm going to give it a try. I'll report on how it worked out next week. My guess is it's probably completely safe, especially since the, the you know, the XE itself does the testing, says it's, it's, you know, doesn't complain about there being a problem. And the version tab says it runs under Service Pack 2 and Service Pack 3. 
Somebody in the uh, chat room actually asks a good question. How do you know if the fix is, uh, has taken? Um, there are floating around the net some tests for this. Ah. Um, I got one from the original discoverer of this link vulnerability. I, I haven't tried it yet, and I'm going to have to go off on a, on, a, on a secure system that's not on my network because, unfortunately, he named it suckme.rar. <laughs> And I'm a little reluctant <laughs> to just jump on that. Oh, these my, hackers. With my, those funny hackers. That's I'm such a, a sense of humor. A little reluctant to just jump on that with yeah. my main system. So I'll, blame you. I'll, I'll find an experimental test system where I, where I verify it, you know, uh, safely. Or maybe do it in a VM or something. So <laughs> I haven't gotten to it, but I will report on all this next week. The, but te- the test this, is if all of a sudden your machine starts speaking Russian, you, you haven't fixed it. Exactly. Yeah. Hello, comrade. Welcome. Um, many of our listeners reported that PayPal is discontinuing the PayPal plugin. Um, not a huge loss. I, I I found it kind of funky to use. This is that I one did, time that would generate a one-time credit card the number. Best, yes, that was the best part of it. Was that you could get a virtual credit card, and in fact, Leo, I have to say, it saved me recently because about a year ago when i or maybe it was more maybe it was 2 years ago that i was working on i think it was 2 years ago i was working on the spoof the dns spoofability system i wanted to get a wild card um ssl certificate and i didn't want to pay a lot for it because i just i was sort of just it was experimental so i got it from godaddy uh you know i think it was star.dns.grc.com or something and because a wild card certificates are a lot more expensive, especially if you get them from VeriSign, where I do purchase the rest of my certificates. And um, that then came due a couple months ago for renewal. Well, um, I didn't want to renew it. And I got a couple of emails from GoDaddy, you know, reminding me that it was coming up for renewal. I just ignored them. Then I got a complaint from them that the credit card that I had used to, to purchase the certificate two years before would not accept their charges for renewal. Mm. Well, of course, I'm very glad yeah. that I used a virtual credit card from PayPal and they did, that they didn't have my master, you know, behind-the-scenes credit card because they were just going to charge me without my permission or authorization for a renewal of, of that certificate. I know you like GoDaddy a lot, but I was... No, a, you, you, the, you, you're talking to the wrong person. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. It's just one of many reasons I'm not a fan. Oh, good. I'm glad to know that because oh, I gosh, was... no. I we thought, don't... Whoa, we have an advertiser so... that uh, we prefer, far prefer Hover.com over GoDaddy because they don't pull hijinks like this. You know, uh, I got a call the other day from uh, Bob Parsons who wanted to educate me on why GoDaddy is so good. I'm just not. I'm sorry. I know why GoDaddy's not good. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be educated. Thank you. Well, here's one more reason. Yeah. When they were complaining they couldn't charge my credit card without my permission or yeah. authorization. Gee, sorry. Thanks anyway. Sorry. Um, in the news, we've got two congressmen, Ed Markey, a, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Joe Barton, a Republican in Texas, who have a history of working together on on privacy-related things, they've just recently sent the, the 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 Wall Street Journal ran a series of stories on 
internet privacy and and like you know disclosure of personal information sort of stuff, which uh, concerned a number of people in Congress, <laughs> and it was really bogus. Because yeah. it was about tracking cookies and things we've known about for years. Exactly. Stuff we've covered well. Yeah. But but there's but I guess what's happening is they're beginning to make some rumblings about thinking about some legislation. And, you know, I hope they do it wisely. Anyway, they sent fifteen letters to major websites, including Microsoft, Yahoo, Comcast, MSN, AOL, Career Builder, MySpace, and others. Hopefully, Facebook as well, although I didn't see them enumerated. Um, and they were specifically asking, how do they monetize the private information that they obtain from their visitors? And how much money do they make mm. from doing that? I love that question mm -hmm. because, of course, behind the money is the motivation. So, uh, and, and, and quoting from the letter, they said, we are troubled by the findings in this report, referring to the Wall Street Journal report, which suggest that the price of consumers' unfettered use of the Internet increasingly is surrender of their personal information, preferences, and intimate details to websites, data monitoring companies, marketers, and other information-gathering firms that seek to track them online and develop digital dossiers for their range of purposes, including marketing. As Congress prepares to consider comprehensive privacy legislation, we request sponsor we request responses to the questions that follow to better understand your company's practices in this area. So, you know, we can, um, you know, and then of course Microsoft responds. Oh, we're all very willing to work with Congress and and hope to do everything we can to shore up our our users' privacy. So, actually, I'm a little concerned because. Um uh, Google has, uh, uh, was it the journal? Somebody revealed a Google internal document uh, in yes. which they're starting to look uh, at how can we monetize the, all that stuff we know about people. I, I heard it described as sort of a soul-searching document. Yeah, and I'm glad they're searching their soul. I hope they do the right thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe we can push them in that direction a little bit. Uh, I'll see yeah. if I can find that article. We'll, we'll certainly be talking about that on This Week on Google, which is right after uh, this show. Um, RIM has decided to install three of their BlackBerry servers in Saudi Arabia um, in order to give the Saudi government access to the textual content of instant messaging and email as it passes through BlackBerry devices in that country. So that's how that controversy uh, settled out. Remember that they were... Uh, they were officially going to shut down BlackBerry access. I think it was on October 11th, and uh, so that uh, that caught Rim's attention, and uh, and Rim decided to solve the problem by moving servers there. And apparently, Lebanon has also recently stated that it too plans to start talks with Rim about uh, in order to allow Lebanese security agencies to monitor communications conducted through the BlackBerry network. So that looks like that's going to be pretty much the the way this is done. Is the the BlackBerry technology itself is extremely robust. I'd spend a little time poking around looking at, at what they do in terms of their architecture. I think and that's the problem because these, these uh, repressive governments cannot read the, you know, what's going on. Exactly. So they want and access then, to the server. Yep. And Germany has been making grumbling noises oh, too. Great. So <laughs> <laughs> That's nice.
Well, you can't trust those Canadians, you know. They could be reading <laughs> for me. Uh, you know, frankly, Canada to me is like Switzerland. I would rather things go through Canada than uh, my, my national government. Yeah, it's about the safest place I can, yeah. you're right, I can imagine it goes. But you can yeah. see why the Saudis and other countries prefer not to. Yeah. Um, Firefox 4 is coming. We've had two betas so far. The third beta is due later this week. And one of the, the new features was blogged about recently that, that hit the news, which is that the Firefox guys have decided they're going to add the silent update feature, much as Google's Chrome browser has, to Firefox. Major versions won't happen. So, for example, a big jump from 4 to 4.5 or from 4 anything to 5 when that happens, that won't, that'll still be interactive and will not be done clandestinely. But, you know, periodic incremental fixes for problems that they are going to do transparently. They're, they're, unlike Chrome, there will be an option in the UI controls of Firefox to, to not have this be done transparent, to make it overt, clear, and interactive. But the default will be, don't bother me with this stuff, just keep the browser running right. And I hope they do it better than they have in 3. I've noticed that I'll often, if I like manually check to see what version I'm on when I'm seeing news about some important updates, it'll, it'll have like gotten stuck partway through downloading, you know, an update that it was trying to get ready to do. I don't know what, where the problem is. It might be that I've got about 80 tabs open. And so it's weighted down a little bit. So it could just be me, but um, it'd be good if that, that process is running. And I, I'm all for having this stuff just fixed. I think for the, for the typical user, um, it makes a lot of sense for, for a, a high profile security target like a web browser to just be fixing itself all the time. I mean, some people say, oh, well, you know, that gives them too much control. How do I trust what they're doing? Well, you know, we're running their software anyway. So you're, you're inherently trusting what they're doing if you're using their browser. How does, you know, manually clicking yes, okay, um, change anything? I guess the, the one downside is if something broke with an update, you would not you there you'd lose that causal connection you wouldn't realize oh wait that might it's because i just did that update that something's now not working if it happens transparently then you don't know why something just broke so there is that um but on on balance i think having these things fixed especially if it allows them to push out fixes more quickly if something bad happens you know it's like the firefox guys who were at the black hat and defcon conferences who said we'll be watching very closely and prepared to, you know, push out any update as soon as it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and speaking of of the news from last week, I was talk- was talking about NoScript version two. And while we were recording last week, someone in the chat room said, "Oh, it's out! It's out!" You know, and it hadn't been that morning. Uh, we're now at two point oh point one, and um, I did update to it, and I wanted to confirm that under that advanced tab under the Abe, the uh, application um, level blocking, there is a new checkbox, which is checked by default, which does add the feature that we talked about, which blocks the local DNS rebinding 
problem. Uh, if this version of Firefox goes out and finds your current um, IP address and then automatically adds that to a filter preventing a script running in the browser from using that IP address to access the the um, your router's um, WAN interface from the LAN side in order to um, prevent its uh, having access to your router. So they added that in NoScript, which is really becoming a nice, you know, an, an increasingly powerful um, uh, addition to Firefox. It'd be nice to begin to see some of these things maybe actually migrate into the, the Firefox substrate instead of always being in NoScript. And lastly, I was going to say, do you want to do your uh, spin right or I'll do, I have a really neat yeah, spin do the, right do the spin right. Yeah. I have a neat spin right story that I came across. Um, so this is just really nice the way uh, the way Robert Greenfield wrote this. He says, "Dear Mr. Gibson et al," because he sent this through GRC's uh, main email. It is with utmost joy that I write to you today. I've been a systems <laughs> consultant and software engineer for over twenty six years and co-authored and co-edited a book on cyber forensics with a professor from Webster University here in St. Louis, Missouri. As a contractor the past 15 years of my career, I've had the opportunity to consult with numerous firms about all manner of issues. One issue that is dear to my heart is, naturally, data recovery. Normally, the tales of woe I have, lost, I have on lost data or other such issues are about other individuals and companies. But this time, it is a true tale of my own that I must relate. I've been using Spinrite 6 for personal use as a preemptive measure on all my computer systems at home and recommending your utility to everyone I consult with as well. Last week, before leaving for a trip out of town to visit my parents in Colorado, a laptop in my house was dropped. Not by me. Uh-uh and caused some damage to the hard disk inside. While the computer still booted up, and he has in parents, barely, it would freeze up and had all sorts of issues doing anything at all. The drive wasn't making any bad noises, though, so I got my copy of Spinrite 6 out and booted the system off the CD-ROM using the ISO image that was burned from the software. As expected... The drive showed a number of severely damaged and even unusable sectors with the software early on. While the time projection for completion was growing and growing as Spinrite discovered more and more bad areas, I decided to leave the laptop on running the software over the few days I would be out of town. Upon return, I looked at the screen and it showed that it had completed the analysis and repair. I used level two. The person who dropped the laptop was excited to know that they, not, that they may not be ostracized completely for life after all and wanted me to reboot it right away. I made her suffer a bit with angst as I reviewed all of Spinrite's logs and summary info before restarting. Perens, just to extract a few more beads of perspiration from the perpetrator closed parens, and then rebooted when enough squirming had been done. Voila! The system booted right back up and worked flawlessly. Yes, the drive did suffer a head crash 
and will have to be replaced quite soon for the safety of the data and capacity. But the system works and all the data was recovered. I was a true believer before anyway, but now I'm even more so. Perhaps there needs to be a cadre of Spinrite 6.0 evangelists, just like Microsoft's various technology evangelists. If so, count me in. Spinrite has always been a tool that I had recommended, both for prophylactic use as well as restoration and repair. But this one incident struck home so deeply that I felt compelled to tell you. I've carried a link on my website to yours for quite some time, and I can honestly say that I don't put links up there without careful thought and review. This incident has only enhanced my already firm conviction that your software is invaluable. Thanks for a fantastic product that truly saved the day. Aww. Robert Greenfield, System Consultant Software Engineer, Lindbergh Technologies, LLC. Isn't that And nice? he's www.lindberghtech.com. Very so, cool. Very, very nice testimonial. Thank you so much, Robert. Well, thank you, Steve. We're going to get to our Q&A in just a little bit. If you don't mind, I'd like to interrupt both for just a brief moment to talk Absolutely. a little bit about our friends at Ford. I don't know if you've seen the uh, specials we did uh, in Detroit last weekend, a week ago. I watched them live while you were walking around oh, with your fun. Hat. Yeah, it was yeah. so fun. You know, we had a few connectivity issues uh, live because... You know, it's all on 3G, and so it depends on where we are it's and so amazing. forth. It's amazing it worked as well as it did, actually. <laughs> it really is. Amazing. Uh, but we also recorded high-definition uh, video as we walked around. So the uh, the downloads are in perfect quality, and there's four different specials. There's three at the Ford uh, facility. We went, we went to the Rouge. Uh, they call it just the Rouge, which is the original uh, Ford Henry Ford uh, uh, factory uh, built in 1929 at... It uh, started with Model A Fords and is still in use. In fact, we went to the, where they build the uh, F-150 trucks. It was so cool. Very rare access. We actually were on the uh, floor. I don't know if you still call it an assembly line. I guess you do. Uh, we rode the conveyor, you know, that brings the truck. It was so cool. So that's one. And then we also go to the test track. You can watch me crash the Ford Flex through no fault of its own. I'm, I'm quick to add it was my driver error into a Fiesta. No, but, but you know, even though I did that, n n neither, neither car suffered any, not even a scratch. Uh, <laughs> I suffered a little bruised ego, but that, that's healed mostly. And then the, finally in the, uh, in the virtual reality environment, they call it the cave where they do a lot of design stuff. It was so cool. And then the, uh, the, that's, those are the first three specials. The fourth special at uh, twit.tv slash specials is a visit to Maker Fair. We do want to thank our friends at Ford. Uh, for bringing us uh, to Detroit. It was a lot of fun. And, and remind everybody to take a look at Ford's voice-activated sync. They now call it My Ford Touch. That's the top level based on the great sync technology. You can, on the new 2011 Fords, you can listen to Pandora and Stitcher. You can, I mean, it's just amazing. You could tweet. You can read tweets. It'll read text messages to you on an Android phones. Uh, my Droid X, literally a message comes in. I hear it announced to me by my Ford Sync. Of course, true hands-free calling, too, on every phone. So you never miss a call. Turn-by-turn -turn voice directions. You don't need to buy the big GPS display. All Ford Sync vehicles will tell you how to go by voice. They'll reroute for traffic conditions. You can have uh, standard uh, routes that you take. There's 911 assist, you know, which is really important. I, I just, uh, re, you know, I had redone my phone, so I had to do the Bluetooth again. And it warns you, it says, you know, you don't have 911 assist turned on. I said, oh, no, turn that on. So if the airbags are deployed... The, the car calls 911, sends your GPS coordinates from the phone, and then a recorded message. It's, it's just kind of cool. 
um, personalized traffic alerts, personalized weather, movie times. You can even find the least expensive gas prices near you and then say, and take me there. The car doesn't drive itself, not yet, but it will tell you where to go. Uh, I just really like Ford Sync, and I want you to give it a try. Either go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com to learn more about it. That's a website we've set up with a lot of videos and so forth. Or go to your local Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury dealer and take a look. We're actually, uh, I've finally convinced Jennifer, you know I drive a a 2010 Mustang, which I love, and um, I finally convinced Jennifer to Trade in the Toyota for a Ford Flex. She loves the Flex, and we love the sync. You give it a try. You're going to like it. Thank you, Ford, for your support of the makers and Maker Fair, and all of us at the Twit Network. We really uh, appreciate that. And if you want to send me that uh, 2011 Shelby, uh, you got my address. Oh, man, that thing was cool. Did you see me scream like a girl? No, no, that part I missed. That must have been there. Must have been a a brownout in the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we did. You know, <laughs> we. I thought, oh, we're driving too fast for the three G. It wasn't that, but the unit, the live view that we use for those those remotes was bouncing around as we were screeching around the track so much that it actually broke off the uh, firewire cable, so we lost signal. <laughs> you know, I forgot to talk to you about Maker Fair. Oh, I mean, if you ever fun? get a chance to go to a Maker Fair. Yeah, it's really the, it's what we were talking about with your uh, portable uh, dog, dog killer. killer. It's it's the spirit of creation. There were two boys there, maybe eleven years old, who built a marshmallow uh, gun. And I mean, it was just <sighs> there were there was I mean, it was it was a dad there who um, uh, built an off road little red wagon for his daughter, and she's riding along. And this thing has suspension; it's about six feet off the ground. It's got like massive suspension on it. It was just it was. It's people who are inspired to make things, exactly as we were talking about. So, if you ever get a chance to see a maker fair, they're going to New York in uh, September. They have well now. There. there is one in San Mateo too. Isn't that's there? where it is every year. Yeah, yeah. So there's no excuse for me not. You to, should come up, not, visit mom yeah. and makers. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really cool. Very cool. Do, um, do you have uh, footage on your on your trip there? There is. There's a whole special just on the maker fair. So if if you go to twit.tv/specials, okay. uh, the maker fair specials there. And somebody was asking me about the my daughter Abby before she left for college was going to give a, a, a speech at a conference called Tomorrow's Web. The conference was called off literally the day before. And she very, I thought this was really cool. She said, well, Dad, why don't we just bring the speakers to the studio and have them do their presentations for the audience? So we did that. And it was amazing a couple of hours with, with kids 17, 18, uh, and 19 talking about what they saw the future of the Internet. And it, uh, it was so inspiring. So we've turned that into a special, too. And that should be out. If it's not out already, that should be out any day now. Uh, a special version of her show, Abby's Road, her farewell edition, although I, I encourage her to keep doing the show while she's at school, but we'll see. She's busy. Uh, let us get to our Q&A. Are you ready, sir? Absolutely. Let's go. We've got a lot of questions for Mr. Gibson, starting with Glenn Edward in Nottingham, Maryland. He says, why can't PCOSs be top-down secure? Dear Steve, in spite of Mr. Balmer extolling how Windows is the most secure operating system ever... <laughs> Despite the recent LNK shell exploit, was able to bypass easily user privilege limits. This implies that much of what Windows does isn't geared towards following security rules. Otherwise, how could any one system file that becomes compromised bypass any level of security established by the uh, system? I always assumed that UAC, user access control, user accounts control, came ahead of something that mostly displays icons and text on the screen... And one would think there would be a hierarchy of programming and user privilege within Windows. I mean, since Windows asks for username, password, and permission before it does much else. 
But it also seems so shockingly stupid that a malformed icon, of all things, received from a browser or flash drive could trump all that security. I think we kind of mentioned that, too, uh, in the show. Whatever programming it is that uh, asks for one's password at the start should act as a sentry in preventing other programs that follow from affecting what takes place in higher privileged levels or even in the uh, user inaccessible root account. But it's sounding more and more as if this isn't so with Windows. In spite of the 15 years' time Microsoft has had to perfect this, is Linux any better constructed as far as following strict security protocols? Is any other Unix-based PC operating software? How about Mac OS? Am I expecting too much? Glenn Edward Nottingham, Maryland. We, we mentioned that, that, that this user privilege escalation seemed like a flaw, a big flaw. Well, yes, but I, I, I liked Glenn's question because it sort of said, you know, What's wrong with the with like the whole system? More right. like from a holistic standpoint, you know, right. isn't there a hierarchy of some sort? Isn't there? I mean, how how can it be that that something like this can 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 create such a breach in the system? And and, and then he talks about how we've had we've had fifteen years, but really, when you think about it, Leo, one of the things, and maybe you've had this experience, I've noticed. When I've had occasion to use a very old system, I mean, like, you know, 10 years old, like, you know, Windows 2000 or, or almost even NT, it's surprisingly familiar. I mean, yeah. there really hasn't been that much change. No. There's been window dressing. And with XP, we got kind of Candyland user interface and more so with Vista, it's like, okay, how can we get people to upgrade? But the, the, the fundamental architecture of Windows hasn't changed during all this time. And the, the truth is that while there is sort of some lip service paid to security in the architecture of Windows, all there really was originally was this concept of logging on. That's all there was. Right. You you know, in 95 and 98, which really the rest of the, the rest of Windows is directly descended from, all you sort of had was identifying yourself to the computer so that multiple users could share a computer. And since multiple users typically didn't, there really wasn't even that much attention paid to that. Now, in fairness, with with the with the NT file system and privileges, you know there was more ability to protect things, but it it's never really been leveraged in Windows. So so you know what what Glenn is sort of asking, and I'm sort of I guess refining from my perspective is this isn't a secure operating system. I mean it it, it never has been and. And we've we've seen the pain that Microsoft has gone through, and, and to you know, well, as they have tried to add features, the problem is adding security features is very difficult when you're starting from an operating system that doesn't have them because the huge base of of software has been written to assume there's no security. That is, the software assumes it can go 
put files wherever it wants to. I mean, even benignly, not, not malicious software, just good stuff. It says, oh, I'm going to put some stuff in the registry here, and I'm going to put some stuff over in the temp folder, and I'm going to stuff some stuff in the Windows System 32 folder, blah, blah, blah. I mean, doing that, if software was all written perfectly and was all deliberately benign, would be fine. But the fact is, we know it's incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive to write software perfectly. And we also know that there's lots of not, a, not only mistakenly insecure software, but deliberately malicious software. All that can leverage the fact that Windows really never, never has been a, a secure operating system. So, so when, when he asks about about Unix-based stuff and and about Mac OS, uh, Mac OS, and and even for example Linux, I would say that in general those systems are more secure because they have a different heritage. They have a a heritage that's more a a non sort of UI-based operating system, more of a command console-based system that then a a graphical user interface was put on top of so and and they were always more developed with security in mind than windows was that basically just had you know a logon password was all the security windows had everything else has come along afterwards with, with, with windows and you just can't do that much without breaking so much software i mean microsoft would probably now love to crank up the security right. after the fact but you know unfortunately it's too late that's where apple had an advantage because they just cut off people they said sorry <laughs> if you're <laughs> it wasn't a big enough install base they could just say we're, we're th you know if you're using os9 bye bye yeah and they needed to because os9 was ghastly yeah, and, and so, you know, and, and Apple has done little bridging things, like where they have, you know, emulators to cross you over for right. a while. And then they say, okay, we're not doing that anymore. How long is an OS good for? I mean, uh, it seems like after 10 years, things change so much that you really should start from scratch. I don't know. Maybe you can't make a rule of thumb. Um, well, the, the one of the nice arguments is that we're seeing that now in the mobile industry. That is that 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 the new OSs are not these big desktop platform OSs, but they're the handheld OSs. I mean, that there is a, there's an opportunity, for example, when Google creates Android, I mean, and it's going to have its own problems. You know, connectivity is a fertile medium for 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 malicious conduct. But, you know, for example, Android and to some degree, the iPhone OS um, well, I mean, to, I think to the same degree, they had this notion of sandboxing applications from the beginning. There was never a concept of sandboxing applications in Windows. And we know that to try to do so after the fact creates an incredible number of problems. So so the newer platforms, I think, are in in the newer application spaces. And we're pretty much stuck where we are, yeah. for example, with Windows. Yeah. Sad to say. Question two, Scott Finneran in Blue Mountain, Australia. Blue Mountains, Australia. How cool. Noted the cars can be hacked through their wireless tire sensors. This story just crossed uh, a couple of days ago. Yep. And it ties into what we were talking about with, uh, with security flaws in, in car software. Steve, as an embedded software engineer in a different industry, I've enjoyed your recent Security Now discussions about security issues in auto electronics. 
You've probably seen this already, but another attack vector has been proven exploitable. And he quotes an Ars Technica article that uh, just a couple of days ago, cars hacked through their wireless tire sensors. What's the story? Well, I just I saw this and, and a number of our listeners picked up on it and, and sent me links. So I just I just picked um, this one, you know, because uh, from from Scott, just because I had to choose one. Oh, so it turns out that the as of 2008, I don't remember what month in 2008, but sometime in 2008, uh, it was mandated by law that all cars that were produced from 2008 on had to include tire pressure sensors, which fed in real time or near real time within about, apparently it's every minute to 90 seconds. The, every tire on the car. Um, I have that on my car. Yes. Yeah. Is, is sending information to the so-called ECUs, the electronic control units about the state of their tire pressure, their current inflation pressure. So if you think about it, it's an interesting problem because the tires obviously are spinning around, so they can't use wires to, or they get tangled up around the axle like <laughs> immediately. Yeah, <laughs> Should have so, a short-term solution. You know, there. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you, you might think, well, okay, you, you don't want to use, you know, like commutator strips or something like, you know, like, like, like a, a, a DC motor has. So... They use RF. They use radio. There's a little radio transmitter and receiver that goes between the tire and hopefully, you know, not very far away, the, the, the unmoving hub that is near the tire. Well, it turns out that these, that these sensors, the, these transmitters, have a 32-bit ID, so not many bits, and no encryption of any kind. So they're fundamentally insecure. You can receive the signal from the tires up to 40 meters away. So 120 feet. And that allows you, of course, to track people by their tire sensors, which are sending out a little blip with this ID um, every 60 to 90 seconds. Um, And unfortunately, it turns out what some... What some researchers at Rutgers and the University of South Carolina, they got together and it turns out you can also spoof the tire sensors because there's no crypto. They have a simple short protocol. Obviously, you don't want to put much money in these things that are spinning around in your tires. And um, they've been able to completely fool the instrumentation in the car, creating all kinds of weird dashboard confusion that is bad to crash the ecus and in fact even damage them to the point where rebooting them doesn't bring them back to life they have to be replaced oh my goodness um there was an uh, ars technica talked about it but there i found some other information and, and i'll just read from this it said um the researchers had found that each sensor has a unique 32-bit id and that communication between the tag and the control unit was unencrypted meaning it could be intercepted by third parties from as far away as 40 meters quote if the sensor ids were captured at roadside tracking points and stored in databases Third parties could infer or prove that the driver has visited potentially sensitive locations, such as medical clinics, political meetings, or nightclubs, unquote, the researchers write. 
in a paper that accompanies the presentation. They're giving a presentation this week at the Usenix conference. Um, such messages could also be forged. An attacker could flood the control unit with low-pressure readings that would repeatedly set off warning lights um, in the instrumentation, causing the driver to lose confidence in the sensor readings, the researchers contend. An attacker could also send nonsensical messages to the control unit, confusing or possibly even breaking the unit. Quote, we have observed that it was possible to convince the TPMS, the Tire Pressure Measurement System Control Unit, to display readings that were clearly impossible, the researchers write. In one case, the researchers had confounded the control unit so badly that it could no longer operate properly, even after rebooting, and had to be replaced by the dealer. Wow. Um, so, anyway, you know, <laughs> just, just another example of the problems that, are available for exploitation. Yeah. Nate is our next question. Actually, before we get to Nate, let me mention our friends at Astaro, and then we will get to Nate, who wants to okay. know about uh, TrueCrypt a little bit. Uh, Astaro, of course, has been with us since the very beginning. Here we are in our uh, last episode of the year five, beginning our sixth season to, uh, next week, and Astaro's been through all five of them. Uh, they're the folks who make the great Astaro security gateway. It is a Unified Threat Management System, or UTM. And if you're in business, you know what that is. It's a it's an enterprise-grade device that protects your entire business. It looks about like a router made out of, you know, heavy-gauge steel. <laughs> it's kind of the RoboCop of routers. Um, it does everything. It's It kind of combines state-of-the-art uh, commercial and open software to do the kinds of things you need to do to protect your small or medium business network. Of course, protection from spam, viruses, hackers, but also some convenience features like VPN built in using all the protocols and SSL on top of it. So it's very easy to implement intrusion protection, uh, content filtering, including instant messaging and peer to peer, uh, the best in class firewall out there. And it's all in a single, easy-to-use, high-performance appliance. Now, you can try it in your business free. They'll put a demo unit in. They want you to, to get it, get your hands dirty in this thing and, and understand how it works by calling them. If you're in the U.S., call 1-877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. They're all over the world. You can also visit A-S-T-A-R-O.com for the number in your country. 1-877, the number 4, Astaro in the U.S., to schedule a free trial of an Astaro Security Gateway appliance. And if you are a non-commercial user, you can try it for free. There is a uh, VMware client an appliance that you can install very easily. Or if you've got a beige box lying around and you want this, the best-in-class UTM in your house, they'll let you do that absolutely free. Just go to astaro.com slash security now. You even get for free the Astaro up-to-date feature, which is a savings of 79 euros, however much that is in American dollars. That's a significant saving. Um, and that includes all the updates for the three antiviruses, two for email, one for the web, for the VPN, for the software. I mean, you get it all. You even get an encryption uh, for your email and signing. All transparent, easy to use, very powerful. And as your business grows, so does Astaro with its patented, I guess patent pending. Maybe it's patented by now. Um, active, active clustering. You can get as many as 10 Astaro security gateways clustered together. Astaro, right now, please call them. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. Or visit them online at astaro.com. 
Security.com. We thank them so much for their support over all these years of Security Now. Great people. Really, really great people. All right. Now we get to our next question. Are you ready? Here it goes. This is from Nathan Jackson, Cincinnati, Ohio, with a note about TrueCrypt system encryption. Stephen Leo, I just thought I'd let you know that currently TrueCrypt system encryption will cause a blue screen of death when the computer hibernates if the disk controller driver you're using is non-Microsoft, for instance, an AMD or Intel controller. I just thought the other listeners should know that prior to performing the encryption process. They must have fixed that by now. Um, well, I, I looked around and I was unable to find any corroboration oh. one way or the other. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to just share it with our listeners in case um, they ran into something like this. The good news is, I mean, it's not catastrophic to anything if your system blue screens when you're hibernating. I mean, you'd rather not because it means you, you yeah. need to reboot and start over again. Um, but uh, I just... I just, as I was running across this, I thought, well, you know, if that's the case, we ought to let people know. So I want to just pass it Uncon- along. Unconfirmed, but uh, something to pay attention to. And they're very good about updating TrueCrypt. You know. Yeah, the, the, the problem, of course, is that, that it's very difficult to do what they're doing. And, and that's the other thing. Is ah. We mentioned that, that with Windows 7, with um, the new version of TrueCrypt, they are for the first time using the hooks that Microsoft built in for, mm. for handling encryption of uh-huh. the hibernation file. But otherwise, it's very tricky. So, I mean, I, I tend to believe that there could be a problem like this. And it may be something that, that they know about. I just I wanted to suggest to our listeners, if they needed this, for example, the controller drivers, the Microsoft native driver, and then be able to get this functionality to work if it was going to still be a problem. Question four, and I hope I'm saying your name right, Jaron Vandenberg in Gouda, Netherlands, wonders how to check if his router is vulnerable to this DNS rebinding attack we talked about last week. Um, wondering how I could check. My understanding is it's pretty simple. You check your WAN IP versus via uh, whatsmyip.com. Use that IP in your browser. If your router's web interface shows up, your router's vulnerable. Is that is that the test? Well, I loved his question because it gives me a, a an opportunity to say something that I should have said. I actually, I, I briefly said it, but I didn't highlight it nearly strongly enough last week, which is the whole rebinding thing, the whole problem allows script running in your browser to get a connection to your router, but absent any other major security flaws from that interface, Ah. the only thing it can do is log in if you have left your router username and password set to their defaults. The good news is that the DDWRP router, when you install it, the first thing it asks you to do, it makes you change your username and password. And some commercial routers now do that too. So which, which is, is very which good. Is really good. Yeah. So so I did want to I, I wanted just to make sure people understood that you know, yes, you really, you know, you don't want your router to be accessible. Um, I would also say as always and this is standard advice is disable universal plug and play support for your router because that's another glaring vulnerability that that this kind of exploit will probably tomorrow be used for 
because if you've got script running in your browser and it's got socket level access, as for example, um, Java gives it and um, Flash does, then universal plug and play is another way for your router to get reconfigured without there being any user interface. But but definitely change your username and password so that so that it's not the default. What happens is when the when the script brings up the page, it can look at the page and obtain all the information it needs to to know what the username and password is because the page, you know, often contains the manufacturer's make and model and ID and other stuff in the page that you receive. And so it can it can then look up the uh, the default username and password for that make and model of router and, and log in. The other thing I wanted to mention was that um, there was a mention here in his question of what's my IP.com. And I went there because I wanted to see whether they supported SSL connections. It's crucial that an IP displaying site be able to do that over SSL or you very often get the wrong IP, which unfortunately many of these simple sites don't recognize. The bad news is what's my IP.com is gone. It expired in February. Yeah, I just went there and it's a it's a holding site. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, at, and so I thought, well, what about .NET? Well, .NET What's my IP.net does exist and it's it's okay, but it does not support SSL. And what's my IP.org exists, but you have to turn scripting on in, in order for that to work. So the one I like the most, and I'm thinking I ought to just do one because I mean it's you know, it's a few hours of work and you know, I you know, I could just be grc.com slash IP or something and everyone would be able to trust and I would do it over SSL and I would make sure it was over SSL and so forth. But the one that I like is the one which no script version two is using, and it's what it's silently using in the background in order to get your WAN IP. And we talked about that URL last week, but unfortunately it's it's spelled funny and hard to get to. So I created, as I like to, a snip URL. So snipurl.com slash what's my IP. And that will redirect you to an to a secure URL, even if it's not. That is, you don't have to put in uh snipurl.com over SSL, just just regular put in your browser, snipurl.com slash what's my IP, and that will redirect you to over an SSL connection to this IP echo page, which simply shows it in simple little text string on your page. We uh I guess I you know he in his email had might have had a typo because there is, and the people in the chat room are telling me there is a site. What is my IP? Oh, okay. and, and that does seem to work. Although I don't know if it's uh, HTTPS. I like yours better because it is secure. Yes, it's good. And the reason that's important, I, I should just finish up. P people may wonder why it makes a difference. Is that um, the reason my own Shields Up site establishes an SSL connection initially? Is that I want to get the person's real IP. Many cable providers will will um, have a transparent proxy in line, so that their customers 
um, web access goes, non-SSL web access goes through a transparent proxy, which then reissues the requests for all of their web material. This is a, it's a caching proxy, which is used by the, by the ISP to minimize the amount of bandwidth that the ISP uses upstream and to improve the performance of their, their own customers' Uh, internet use. So, for example, if uh, if Google's logo is not changed, then w- the the first person to g- go to Google will will have that logo cached locally in the ISP's caching proxy, and then any other customers of the ISP will just fetch it from the from from the cache. So it's much quicker for the customers and it minimizes the ISP's use of upstream bandwidth. The problem is that a server sees the IP of the proxy, not the IP of the user. So if you're not if you're if you're using any of these IP um, reporting services that are not over SSL, you have no guarantee that you're not being told that your IP is the proxy IP. Makes sense. Got a long one here. I'm going to try to synopsize a little bit because we're running out of time. Rick Hubner in Melbourne, Florida, uh, talks a little bit about something we talked about on This Week in Google last week. That was the exploit that uh, came out of Russia. It was a, a wallpaper that <laughs> uh, had a Trojan in it. And as soon as the wallpaper software ran, uh, you would uh, it would send your contact list out and all sorts of bad things would happen. We mentioned on Twig that there is a warning you get when you first install software about what resources the software needs. Rick says, my problem with the Android install warnings screen telling you what resources the application is going to use is that you have no option. So you just all you could say is yes or no. He says, I wonder why it couldn't be modified to place checkboxes by the resources the application is requesting so I could uncheck them. We also suggested, and he agreed it was a good idea, that maybe a, a firewall that would sit on Android and say, hey, this application is asking for this. This application is asking for this, and, and just as Windows does, and then request permission to do so. Uh, that does seem like a, a good idea. Uh, finally, in a previous episode, you were talking about the loss of the five-dot IP space in the current, current global IP crunch. You mentioned that Hamachi, owned by LogMeIn, now uses five-dot. When the subject changed, you never finished your thought. Tell me that ICANN didn't assign the five-dot addresses as routable. All my family members are required to, to have Hamachi and VNC to request any support from me. I like that. Unless they want to FedEx their computer to me, eagerly waiting for the next security now and, more importantly, CryptoLink Rick Hubner. So, yeah, you, I remember we started that conversation. What, what did happen to five-dot? Um, okay, um, it is up it is on the chopping block. Oh boy. There is a really interesting RFC, the so-called re- request for comment. The document is three 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 zero. So if you just if you put into Google RFC three 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 zero, that's a the formal spec for what regions of the VIPv4 space are reserved. And it's it makes interesting reading because there's there's a lot of different little gotchas here and there that uh, especially people who consider themselves you know internet gurus I think will get a kick out of looking at and go hey I didn't know that was reserved for that or that's reserved for something else so it's a neat little document and uh, there's no sign there of the five dot which is absolutely reallocatable so 
I'm logged me in, we'll probably have to move Hamachi somewhere else. There are some other networks that they could use that um, that aren't quite as clean as the five dot, but um, ultimately it's probably going to get given to somebody, and that would hmm. be a problem. Hmm. Um, relative to to Android and security permissions, we I think you know I see a problem, which is we're trying to appeal to a very wide range right. of users. Right. It's a phone, after all. Yes, and I mean the fact is, people as 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 um, as Rick suggests, they do just click on OK. Right. That's what people do. I'm sure that if in the license agreement of any of this software it said, and we're going to steal all your personal information and send it back to Russia. <laughs> By the way. People would say, okay, okay. <laughs> fine. Because yeah, yeah, they wouldn't, yeah, yeah. no one's going to read that yeah, stuff. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, they don't. No. Now, it's what I would love to see would be... And I mean, for example, BlackBerry uh, applications do something similar where they, they come up and you get a screen of, you know, the application wants the following access to your stuff. And you just sort of like, oh, OK, fine. I mean, the problem is there's even if someone does care, what you really need is this is what we want. This is why we want it. And if you turn it off, this will be the consequence to you. So. Most people are just going to say, fine, whatever. But it would be nice for a, a sophisticated user to have the availability of making informed decisions. But, you know, the, the, as you said, Leo, summed it up beautifully. It's a phone. Unfortunately, it's also becoming a computer. I think we have time for one more before. Let's, the, jump, to, uh, let's jump to the end then. Let us jump to the last question. Jack Daniel, who's the guy with the beard at Astaro. Well, there you go. Wrote, subject, Hack Kid Conference. Hey, Steve, I think someone from Astaro may have tweeted this at you, but please check out H-A-C-K-I-D.org. I think it's probably Hack ID, right? Not Hack Kid. Oh, it's Hack Kid, actually. It is Hack Kid, okay. Yep. Hack ID.org. I think you'll like the idea. Hack Kid is a hacker maker conference for kids and their parents covering topics from introductory programming to safety, online and physical, to soldering and much more. If you like the idea and feel it's appropriate, we'd really appreciate a plug for Hack Kid on Security Now. Well, you just got it from the site. Kids are our future. Why not give them that spark that will set them on a journey that only hacking can inspire? Hack Kid was created to educate, stimulate, and develop children 5 to 17 and adults in a variety of educational areas in order to raise awareness and understanding of technology, mathematics, and engineering and the impact of society and, on society and culture. It's a 5013C nonprofit. Thanks, Jack Daniel. He says he's on the advisory board and helping with uh, planning and running the first event. Hey, that's cool. H-A-C-K-I-D.com if you want to get involved. It looks really neat. I went to the site, browsed around for a while. Um, it's, uh, I think, affordable. It's $50 per person. Um, they have a bunch of topics that really look interesting. Um, and I got a big kick out of his Jack Daniel, the guy with the beard, because if you remember, um, the first time I saw the Astaro booth was when I was up at the RSA conference a couple of years ago. And I made a point of going over to the, to the Astaro booth. And 
I remember describing to you, Leo, I said, hey, you know, I mean, they like, like, looked like real Unix guys. There was even a guy with a whole beard. <laughs> well, that's the guy with the whole beard. This is really neat. There's one coming in, in Boston, October 9th and 10th. Yes, that's the first one. Yeah. And well, this then is I think great. In, in Washington, D.C., I think, is one that they haven't yet scheduled, but, but oh, they're, yeah. they're aiming at that. So I just thought, I know, I know our listeners, I know how many, how many people reacted to the portable dog killer story. Rel- I mean, in just in terms of the feedback I received who had young kids who like went out in the garage and, you know, started, you know, taking their toy, their old toys apart to try to hack something out of it. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised if our listener base has a bunch of parents who, mm-hmm. you know, could really get some some benefit from this. So I wanted to share the news. And it, this is not, you know, this is Astaro doing just, um, you know, being involved in this in a non-profit fashion, he's on the advisory board, and uh, it looks like it's a you know a hacker maker conference for kids. I so love that. you know, five and, to you know, seventeen. I love that. Really, really topically oriented to that age uh, range, which I think is terrific. H a c k i d dot org. They have a wiki and they have a page that describes it. They have an event scheduled for Boston, one coming up in D.C., and they're looking for people who would like to sponsor similar events elsewhere in the u.s and it usually i think a hacker space is a great place to do this so if you've got a hacker space i know there's some wonderful hacker spaces all over the country um, this would be a great thing to do there i'm doing an event uh, kind of like this well more about keeping kids safe but this that's part of this uh in november maybe we could make it a hack kit that would be so much fun really neat idea they talk about online safety, how to deal with cyberbullies, physical security, gaming competitions, interactive robot building, how the internet works, food hacking. Food hacking, I love it. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Steve, I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions, but we are out of time. That's my fault. I will uh, endeavor to start on time next time. I apologize, but uh, I'm sure there are many, 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 many questions we could be answering. We won't be running out anytime soon. No. Then you can always go to grc.com slash feedback to ask your question for our next session two weeks hence. Uh, what are we going to talk about next week? Do you know? I've got surprise? so many things queued up. I, I haven't picked one yet, good. but I'll know it'll, I know it'll be a good one. We'll know it when we hear it. We do this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. So I do invite you to join us for the live broadcast Join us in the chat room at irc.twit.tv. It's always a great uh, place for feedback. And, um, of course, if you go to grc.com, Steve's site, you'll find 16 kilobit versions of this show, full transcriptions, uh, which are really useful to have, and uh, all the show notes, plus all of Steve's great stuff, including Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility and a must-have, grc.com. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Leo. On security now. Security now.